Welcome to the Liquid Church Podcast, a place where you can hear the timeless truth of God's Word in a way that's culturally relevant and cutting edge. Today, you're tuning in for our series, The Daniel Dilemma. In this series, you're going to meet a young man named Daniel who did something remarkable. He learned to stand firm in his faith and love others well despite living in a culture of compromise. Together, we'll learn how to walk closely with God without caving to pressure or alienating those we hope to reach. It's our hope this message will help you discover how God's story relates to your own and that you will leave feeling encouraged. Thanks for joining us today and enjoy the message. Well, happy spring, everybody who's loving the warm weather. Let's give a big warm welcome to everybody at Church Online or all of our live locations. Glad you're here at Liquid. I'm Pastor Tim and um, so happy you're joining us for part four of our series, The Daniel Dilemma. Have you been enjoying it? I hope you have. Um, Honestly, I've just kind of fallen in love with the book of Daniel. To me, it's so relevant for contemporary culture, modern times. It's really teaching us how to stand firm and love well uh, in our culture of compromise. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this, but Daniel isn't just history. It's located in the prophecy section of the Old Testament, meaning it it does predict the future. It teaches us about the end times. So understand uh, these aren't just historical accounts of like what happened to Daniel and uh, his buddies during their captivity in Babylon. What it does is it paints a prophetic picture of your life and my life today. I want you to think of it like a field manual for living in the last days. And so today I want to share a message taken straight from the book of Daniel chapter 5. And I really, it's a question I'm asking, and the title of my message is this, is the handwriting on the wall for America? How many of you heard the phrase, the handwriting's on the wall, right? You you know that it's actually something we say when a situation becomes so serious that like everybody sees a disaster coming, like the shoe's about to drop, bro. Something heavy's going to happen. And so we say stuff like, well, you know, losing his job was no surprise. He'd seen the handwriting on the wall weeks before. Well, that phrase, the handwriting on the wall, is ripped right out of Daniel chapter 5. And this is a powerful, very prophetic Bible story. I've never actually preached on it before. And today I want to show you how it applies not only to our nation, to our church, our families, but to our individual lives. So if you open your Bible, Daniel chapter 5, we're going to go exegetical on your butt. We're going to go verse by verse. Okay, God's Word says this. Uh, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles, and he, what did he do? He drank wine with them. So it's wine time. Uh, let me set the scene here. This is 66 years have elapsed since chapter 1, when King Nebuchadnezzar sacked Jerusalem, takes Daniel and his buddies captive back to Babylon. 66 years. So you know how old Daniel is now? He's in his 80s, guys. And there's a new king on the throne, King Belshazzar. It says a son of Nebuchadnezzar. He might have been a grandson, but he decides to throw this giant drinking party. It says he gave a great banquet for 1,000 of his nobles and drank wine with them. Now, great banquet's probably an understatement. You need to understand something. At this moment, Babylon is the greatest empire on earth. It is the richest nation on the planet. It is the most powerful nation in the world. And the Bible pictures King Belshazzar as young, he's rich, he's powerful, but he's also at the same time prideful. He's self-centered. He had just won some great military victories. He says, I'm going to throw this lavish feast, this royal reception for a thousand of my buddies. And this probably takes place in the famous hanging gardens of Babylon. Have you heard of those? It's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. I'll leave this picture up for you. Babylon was world famous and the walls of the city were actually 80 feet thick. Can you imagine? 
So they were very at peace because like no enemies are going to go over the walls. No enemies are going to go through the walls. And the city, this city had a river running right through it, the Euphrates. You can still see it today. And it guaranteed an endless supply of water for their famous gardens. So Belshazzar and his people, they feel proud. They are at peace. They're totally secure. Now I want you to imagine Babylon with all of its glamour, all of its wealth, much like America today. And Belshazzar says, I'm going to throw the greatest party in the history of the world. And so he gets the finest entertainers. He's got J-Lo, Shakira, and Beyonce to perform. He orders the finest wines, the finest foods. He sends out a thousand invitations to the lords and the ladies. I want you to envision a Hollywood party. We just had the Grammys the other week or the Academy Awards. He rolled out the red carpet and invites a who's who list in Babylon. Prince and princesses, dukes and duchesses. Harry and Meghan are there. Queen Oprah walks in. They all come in their glittering chariots to party the night away with Belshazzar, whining and dining and dancing. And the Bible says this. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, it's happy hour, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Now, this is bad, but we don't know. At some point in the party, Belshazzar became drunk, and at some point in the night, he says, you know, I'm going to show off. Hey, guys, go get me those go get me those gold goblets from God's temple that my daddy took when we sacked Jerusalem. Remember that? He's going to flex a little bit. Now, obviously, this is deeply disrespectful. I mean, can you imagine stealing communion cups from a church and using it like a crunk cup at a frat party? Yeah! Belshazzar was a playboy, and this was a pagan pleasure party for his rich friends, his wives, and his concubines. By the way, uh, earmuffs, PG-13. Concubine is a polite way of saying there's some kind of orgy happening here, okay? You, you get the picture? In many ways, this was a symbolized the twin values of Babylon. Pride and pleasure, very hedonistic, just like America. And Belshazzar wanted to show off his power and wealth that, you know what, not only am I not down with the God of the Bible, but I am like a God myself. It says, so they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives, his concubines, what they do? They, they drank from them. And as they drank the wine, they praised the small g gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. Building materials. In other words, they were very materialistic. Belshazzar and his court worshipped idols. Basically, they said, look what our empire can build and buy. So there he is, the king of the empire, the master of the banquet, the center of attention, drinking and dancing the night away, happy hour in Babylon. But you know what the Bible says. It says, don't be deceived, God isn't mocked. Whatever a person sows, he will also reap. In other words, Belshazzar, watch out. Judgment is coming. The Bible says God opposes the proud, that he actually hates pride. Jesus said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, guarantee you. In other words, if you try to tell how great you are and you leave God out or you act as though you can solve your own problems, you can arrange your own life very much without the help of God, God says, I'm going to bring you down. And that can happen to individuals, to families, to entire nations. Well, Belshazzar is partying, he is, he's drinking, he's dancing, he's grinding away with Cardi B, and suddenly everything stops. The music stops. The dance floor stops. Who, who stopped the playlist? Everybody's silent. You can hear a pin drop. And the Bible says his face turns white. He, 
he begins to tremble in horror. Because every, do you see it? Look, a human hand writing on the wall. Verse 5 says, suddenly the fingers of a, a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. And the king watched the hand as it wrote. And his face turned pale. And he was so frightened that his, his legs became weak and his knees were, were knocking. <laughs> I just love the Bible. In these two verses, this is where we get two idioms most of us don't know. They're phrases in our culture. Most people don't know where they come from. Handwriting on the wall, something bad's about to happen. And knees knocking. You ever been so scared your legs get weak, your knees start knocking, your heart starts pounding? That's Belshazzar. It's like he saw a ghost. Now this disembodied hand that reaches into the party, no body, just hand and fingers, we don't know exactly what it looked like. Was it a, a wispy ghost hand? Or did it look like Thing, you know, from the Adams family? You guys remember Thing, you know? Do, 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 do. <laughs> the scripture says it had the fingers of a human hand. Like the hand of God himself reaching down, I have a direct message, a DM for you. It ain't on your phone, I'm going to write it on the wall. Now I did some research, I found this famous painting by Rembrandt called Belshazzar's Feast. Isn't it cool? Look at the lighting in it. It's from the National Gallery in London. And look at the faces. You can see the, the shock, the fear on the faces of the king and his court. They're whining and dining. You see, you see the golden goblet looted from God's temple. It's tipping over and spilling wine, and, and he's white. As the hand of God writes on the wall. What, what did he write, Tim? Verse 25 says, this is the inscription that was written. Many, many, tekel, parson. Three words. Many, tekel, parson. It says many, many twice. These are Aramaic words. And you may say, well, what do they mean? I'll tell you in a minute. Just put that in your pocket right now. I'm going to tell you later. Belshazzar could read them. Many, many, tekel, parson, but he couldn't understand them. And so the king summoned enchanters, astrologers, and diviners and then he said to these wise men of Babylon, he said, all right, whoever reads this right and tells me what it means, I'm going to clothe you in purple. You're going to have royal robes. I'm going to put a gold chain of authority around your neck. I'm going to make you the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Now, I want to pause here because I feel like the Lord wanted me to say this. But Belshazzar consulted with enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. In modern times, we might say he went to a psychic. He, he went to a fortune teller, someone who, who could do tarot cards and, and horoscopes. In other words, he dabbled in the occult, which, by the way, is forbidden for Christ followers. Now, I know some of you might say, really, Tim? I like a strong, I like going to a psychic or medium, you know, like talking with my, you know, dead grandma. Does that seem like harmless fun? Let me be clear, from God's perspective, you are actually dabbling in the demonic. Because God alone is able to predict the future. He writes prophecy with his finger. And all other voices, understand, are counterfeit. You are literally talking with demons. It is Satan's deception designed to leave Christians astray. It's demonic. You need to stay away from it. I felt like God just saying, Tim, I want you to highlight this because there are some people who mean well, but they don't know. They have ignorance. So now you know. Steer clear, Christians. It says, then all the king's wise men came in and they couldn't read the writing or tell the king what it meant. And so Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale, and his nobles were baffled. No one could understand what God wrote in the wall. And then suddenly, 
the doors to the banquet hall burst open. And Belshazzar's mother comes in, the queen mother. It says, the queen, hearing the voices of the king and nobles, said, may the king live forever. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. I know a guy. <laughs> you know where this is going? There's a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. Anybody want to guess who she's talking about? He's, she's like, hey, God's got a man and his name is Dan. Dan the man. You remember him? He's filled with the Holy Spirit of the God of Israel. The, God, the people of the book, the God of the book is in him. Now Daniel's old and Belshazzar's young, so he doesn't remember Daniel. His mother has to tell him, she says, listen to this, and I want you to listen to how she describes Daniel. Would you lean in and listen to the word that this pagan priestess uses to describe this man of faith? He says, in the time of your father, he was found to have, what's the word, church? Insight and what? Intelligence and what? Wisdom, like that of the gods. Can I ask, is that how people would describe you as a Christian? Man, she's smart, she's intelligent. He is so full of insight. He has wisdom from God. It struck me that Daniel had an impeccable reputation among the Babylonians. They're like, we don't respect your Bible. We don't respect your God. We respect Daniel. And she says, your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief because Daniel was found, look at this, look what she says, to have a what? A keen mind and knowledge and understanding and he can also interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call Dan the man, he'll tell you what the writing means. And I thought to myself, wow. Is that how the non-Christians in your life talk about you? <laughs> you gotta talk to Karen, man. She is wise, she is understanding, even if you don't believe what she leaves, she's a problem solver. <laughs> Sadly, I'm not sure our culture would use those words to describe most Christians today. You ask the average non-believer, they'd say Christians, yeah, sure, uh, petty, uh, closed-minded, judgmental. Not helpful. <laughs> Not Daniel. Dan the man was God's man for this moment. So Daniel was brought before the king. And the king said to him, if you can read this writing, you tell me what it means. I'm going to clothe you in purple, have a gold plane around you, chain around your neck. And you'll be the third highest ruler in the kingdom. The prime minister, basically. Basically, Belshazzar said, I'm going to give you a reward. I'm going to give you a royal robe, a Babylonian bling, and you get the position of prime minister. Third highest in command in the kingdom. He plays to Daniel's ego. And I love this because Daniel's like, bro, I'm 80 years old. I don't need any of that crunk. He says, thank you, king, but no thanks. I can keep it. <laughs> and he doesn't do this, guys, to be disrespectful. Remember, Daniel is always has wisdom. He always has tact. But it's actually his wisdom in action. It's Daniel's way of saying, with all due respect, my loyalty is to God, not money. Then Daniel answered the king, you can keep your gifts for yourself. And you can give your rewards to somebody else. Nevertheless, I'm going to help you out. I will read the writing for the king and I'm going to tell him what it means. Isn't that cool? Belshazzar basically says, hey, uh, I know you're corrupt, but I'm going to help a brother out anyway. <laughs> Daniel wasn't motivated by material rewards. His entire life was laser focused on doing what was right in the eyes of God. He said, I'm going to give you an unbiased interpretation. And he looked at those words on the wall and he looked at those words and he recognized them immediately because it was his father's handwriting. You know your father's handwriting? This was God the father's handwriting and Daniel had lived with God. He fasted and prayed to God all these years and he knew what God was saying. 
And if you read verses 18 through 21, Daniel gives Belshazzar a little history lesson about Nebi, how God humbled his father, actually knocked him off his throne, stripped him of his power, and drove him insane. Did you know that? Before he got saved, Nebuchadnezzar went mad, insane in the Bible, crawled around on all fours like a wild animal. There's a famous carving by William Blake. Today is art day, art lovers. Look at this, isn't this awesome? This is, just look at Nebuchadnezzar's wild hair and his fingernails are like claws. It's crawling around eating grass. He says, you don't remember your father? Your majesty, the most high God gave your father, Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was kicked off his royal throne and stripped of his glory. And he was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. And he lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven. He slept out naked all night. Until when? Until he acknowledged, listen to me. Oh, let's say this together. This is powerful. Until he acknowledged that what? The most high God is sovereign over all kingdoms of earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. Translation, God is writing the story of the nations. History is actually his story. And the most high God is sovereign over every nation on earth, and he sets anybody over them he wishes. Isn't that encouraging to know? Do you watch the news? That no matter how crazy our culture seems to get, God is in complete control. He is steering history. He's guiding every step. He rules nations. So you don't have to despair. You don't have to freak out when corrupt politicians or presidents or prime ministers set themselves up, God is in control and his finger is writing the course of history. History is his story, amen? Even Nebuchadnezzar learned that lesson. Nebuchadnezzar got saved, guys. You're gonna see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. You're gonna say, I remember that time you were eating grass, man. That was crazy, what was that like? But you, Belshazzar, his son, you ain't humbled yourself. You knew all this. And instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles and your wives and your, your hoochies, you all drank wine from him. In other words, God's offended by you. I had to wonder, like, is God offended by our behavior as a nation? Our, our pleasure-seeking, our abuse of power, our tolerance of violence— our celebration of sin. Is the handwriting on the wall for America? Daniel said, you praise the gods of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, stone, which can't see or hear or understand, but you didn't honor the God who, watch this, see that hand? Holds in his hand your life and all your ways. And therefore he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. What? That's my father's handwriting on the wall. Many, many tekel parson. My daddy wrote that. You know what it means? Verse 25. Here it is. Pull it out of your pocket. Three words that scholars agree were probably written in Aramaic. And Daniel said, here is what the words mean. Many. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. You're finished, Belshazzar. The party's over. Your number's up, and God's judgment has arrived. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Interesting image. Daniel says, the great scales of God have been brought out, Belshazzar, and your life is being weighed in this balance. 
Carson. Your kingdom is divided. It's given over to your enemies, the Medes and the Persians. It's destined for the dustbin of history. You talk, can I just say you talk about a tough sermon to deliver. <laughs> In the ancient world, kings would often kill the bearer of bad news. That's where we get that phrase from. But even Belshazzar knew Daniel was telling the truth. It says at his command, Daniel was clothed in purple, even though he didn't want it. A gold chain was placed on his neck and he was promoted to the third highest ruler in the kingdom. He becomes the prime minister of the next empire. Respected for his wisdom, his faith, his purpose, his godliness. But what became of Babylon? Here's the punchline. Last verse of the chapter. As Daniel delivers this prophecy, unknown to Belshazzar, unknown to the party people, outside the celebration, the great river Euphrates was changing its course. And historians describe how the Medes and the Persians actually came together and joined forces. And they diverted the river that ran through the city so that they walked straight into it, under the city walls, on a dry riverbed. And Babylon fell to a surprise attack. That very night, Belshazzar, king of Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Mark it, it's the end of an empire. We actually know from history, Belshazzar was beheaded on October 11th, 539 BC, and it was the end of Babylon. What's the point, Tim? Every nation is temporary. All leadership and power is temporary. We're like loose change in God's pocket. He says, I'm just going to spend it however I want. Sovereignly given by God, but snatched away in a moment. And so the question for us is, does this, does this story about ancient Babylon contain a lesson for us in modern America? Again, this is history, but watch, it's also prophecy. It's a forecasting of the future. And the question is, is the handwriting on the wall for America? Well, if you're a student of Scripture... It's not too hard to read the signs of the times. I always tell people, read the news with the newspaper in one hand and the Bible in the other. And let me tell you, when the Bible is beginning to be labeled as hate speech, the writing is on the wall. When families are fractured, uh, broken down by no-fault divorce, over half a million abortions annually, an epidemic of fatherlessness, the handwriting is on the wall. Just telling you, not popular to hear, but I'm not here for a popularity contest. When marriage is mocked and pathologies are promoted as something to celebrate, the handwriting is on the wall. When any nation is divided like America is, politically, racially, economically, morally divided, the handwriting is on the wall. Jesus Christ said a kingdom cannot divided, cannot stand. So is God's writing on the wall for America? Maybe, maybe not, but I want to make it more personal. Is God's writing on the wall for you, for me? You know, this week as I study this passage, I have to say I didn't sleep a lot. I felt a little heavy. Like I thought about it, I was like, if my life was placed on the great scales of God, would I be found wanting? Have I been a faithful leader? of my life, my family, our church? Because it's real sobering when you look at your life in light of prophecy. That word many means numbered. And the truth is, all our days are numbered. You got a number, I got a number, only God knows it. 
The Bible says people are destined to die once and after that to face what? Judgment. That's the truth. The truth is death can happen to us at any moment. And one day, watch this, each of us will stand before the great scales of God with our life literally hanging in the balance. Tackle, Wade. If your life was weighed today, what would the scale say? Would you be found wanting like Belshazzar? He had prestige, he had power, he had a privileged life. And you know what? In comparison to the rest of the developing world, most of us Americans do too. But there came a moment when it was Tekel weighed in the eyes of God, and he's like, yeah, you're a little bit light, bro. A little bit light. You know, this is a misconception that a lot of Americans have. That when we die, a lot of people think, well, I'm going to stand before God with this giant scale. And all my bad behavior will be on this side. And then hopefully my good deeds will be on this side. And hopefully my good will outweigh my bad right? My good will outweigh the bad, right? Fingers crossed. People say this to me all the time. I'll ask them, I'll say, when you die, and you will, and you stand before God on judgment day, and you might, how do you know he'll let you into his heaven? The number one answer I hear is, even from Christians who go to church their whole life, I hope my good deeds outweigh my bad. Isn't that how God judges? The answer is no. It's not at all how God judges. So what's God going to weigh you by? Like, like here's you. Here's God. What's, he, on the other, what's on the other side of God's great scales? Let me be clear to you. God's going to weigh your life on three things. The first thing he's going to weigh you by is his law. The Ten Commandments represents it. How do you measure up with the Ten Commandments? Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't murder. Don't lie. Don't use the Lord's name in vain. Anybody here, show of hands, kept all the commandments perfectly. One person. Bad news. Now you're guilty of lying. Do you know the Bible says if you fall short of one commandment, you're guilty of breaking all ten in the eyes of God. So if you're honest like me, you'll agree, man, I, I've at least broken two or three, maybe four or five which means we're guilty of breaking all God's law. We're all sinners, and that's the reason Jesus says, if any one of you doesn't have any sin, you can take the first stone and throw it at the woman caught in adultery. And none of the religious leaders could do it because we all have sin. The Bible says we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and we're under the judgment of God. But secondly, the Bible says, not only will you be weighed by the Ten Commandments, you're going to be weighed by the law of love. It's not all rules, people. In fact, what's the best commandment, Jesus? What's the most famous one? You know what Jesus said? Love the Lord your God with all your what? All your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. It's the first, it's the greatest commandment. And the second's like it. Watch this. Love your what? Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. In other words, Jesus is like, it's all summed up in love. And so at the end of your life, God's going to say, have you not only kept my moral law, have you kept the law of love? Have you loved me with all your mind, soul, heart, and strength? Have you loved your neighbor? Now your neighbor doesn't mean the, the family next door to you who looks like you, who votes like you, who plays little league with your kids. 
Your neighbor means anybody in need. Jesus taught that in the story of the Good Samaritan. Do you love people in need who are different from you as much as you love yourself? Can I ask, how's that gone for you this year? Yeah? Like last 12 months. <laughs> Jesus said, we'll all be weighed by the law of love. And finally, we'll all be weighed by the shattering person of Jesus Christ. God said, be holy as I am holy. Now, Jesus Christ was the holiest man that ever lived. We call some people in India holy men, but Jesus was the only true holy man of history, completely righteous. Je think of it this way. Jesus set the gold standard for holy living. And if you don't actually live like Jesus, if you don't love perfectly like Jesus, you will come up short on God's great scales. He'll say, many, many, Tekel Parson, you have been weighed, Scott, and found wanting. And I get, what? Tim, who in the world can measure up? I can't balance out the scales. If God's going to weigh me by the life of Jesus, the Ten Commandments, and the law of love, I don't weigh enough. I'm a lightweight. <laughs> That's the reason you have to say, God, I'm a sinner. I'm found wanting. I can't measure up in the light of your law, in the love of Christ. But the hope of this whole thing is that there is a gospel. In the gospel, which means good news, it's good news to people who are humble enough. Say, God, I'm guilty. The good news is that God sent his son, Jesus, to the cross to die for you. And on that cross, Jesus took all those sins of yours, all those sins of mine, onto himself. And an exchange happened. You know what the Bible says? God took the sinless Christ and poured into him our sins. Then in exchange, he poured God's goodness onto us. Isn't that good news? The cross of Jesus Christ is at the center of the scale. And when Jesus hung on that cross, an exchange was made. All our sins and failings given to Jesus, and the perfect life of Christ, the gold standard, credited to our side. That's how God said, I'm going to balance the books. My son's the gold standard, and if you trust him, I'll credit his perfect life to your account. I want you to think of that golden goblet, that communion cup Belshazzar sold from the temple, and he drank wine from it. On the cross, do you know what Jesus drank? He drank the cup of God's wrath. He drank God's judgment being poured on human sin. Do you remember in the garden, Jesus said, Father, if possible, take this cup from me. He looked into the horror of the cross and he saw the handwriting on the wall. My question is, do you? Do you realize you don't weigh enough to get to heaven? But on the cross, Jesus provided a righteousness that you don't have. And the only reason I can stand here and tell you that with confidence is because I know I stand here before you, not perfect in my own strength, but 100% acceptable by my Father in heaven. Not because I've been good, not because I read the Bible, not because I preach to crowds of people. I'm acceptable because of Jesus Christ alone. Full stop, period. Say amen if you believe it. Make some noise in the chat. You are accepted fully by God the moment you repent. You admit your sin and you believe the good news. That's the invitation right now. 
You can claim what Christ did on the cross for you and leave here knowing I weigh enough to get to heaven. I weigh enough to have my sins forgiven. Christ took it all, he drank it all, and he's given me a new life. Meeny, meeny, tickle, parson, you've been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Will you be found wanting? Right now, I believe our nation and world are being weighed. I think we're being weighed right now. We're being sifted for sure. Our sin is great in the eyes of the Lord. And can I tell you, this is a hard message for me to deliver. And so I prayed before I came on said, I said, God, would you give me the strength to actually stand here and speak straight to them like Daniel, without wax, no varnish. And God said, you tell the truth, Tim. And the truth is, sin is coursing through our culture like a cancer. The corruption, the division, the arrogance, the pride, the lust, the lying, the violence, the racism, the mass shootings, God sees it all and it sickens him because we're living in the United States of Babylon. And many Bible scholars believe, oh, the handwriting is not only on the wall, God's judgment is already underway. But on judgment day, God's not going to weigh you as an American. He'll remember our sins as a nation, but he's going to remember something else too. It's never too late. God actually remembers to forget. The Bible says if any group of people, any nation will repent of their sins and turn to the Lord, he will forgive them and heal the land. That's an ironclad promise of the Lord. Amen? So I just think this will not be a popular sermon. I do not think this will go viral on YouTube. But I believe it's a word in season. I believe God appointed me to hand deliver it to you today because somebody's life is hanging in the balance. In the history of your life, this is your defining moment with God, a last chance to receive him into your heart and make sure you weigh enough. And I'm telling you this today. Listen, listen to me, you know why? I'm going to tell you today and we'll put it on YouTube forever because here's why. I ain't going to see you at the judgment. I'm not going to be there. Bible says there's no judgment for those who are in Christ. So I won't see you there. All the judgment that Tim Lucas deserves was taken by Jesus Christ on that cross 40 years ago. When I accepted what Christ did and I asked him into my heart and I asked him to be Lord of my life and I'm going to give you the invitation to do the same right now. So let's just bow our heads right now for a salvation prayer. Let's put our hands out we're, as a sign of opening our heart. We're opening our lives to the Lord. Father, your word is speaking. I am receding into the distance and your prophetic word is going out and you're convicting hearts. And so, Father, I thank you for a moment of salvation. There are men and women who are about to be born again. They know, Father, that they don't weigh enough to get into heaven and they need you, Jesus. And so you can simply talk to Jesus yourself. You can say, Jesus, come into my heart. Forgive my sin. I admit I'm a sinner. I need you. And I put my trust in what you did on that cross. Thank you for loving me enough to die for me. I believe you were raised from the dead and that you can bring me to life. And so I receive the gift of eternal life. Forgive my sins. Fill me with your Holy Spirit so that I can live like Daniel for you. In Jesus' name I pray. Everybody said, amen. Well, today we're going to close by receiving 
well, the cup of communion, the life of Christ as one church family. So all our live locations, I want to invite you to take out the communion cup you received on the way in. If you're on church online, bro, relax. Just use what you have. A cracker, some juice, just fine. The Bible says this, that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he offers his friends communion so they would remember what he did to balance the scale. And scripture says that Jesus took the bread. So if you're at a live location or you're online, you take your cracker, would you break it? You can say these words, this is my body broken for you. Do this to remember me. Let's eat together. And then he took the cup and he said, this cup is my blood shed to forgive your sins. And every time you drink it, you know what you're doing? You're standing up and proclaiming my death until I return and bring you to life. Let's drink together. Jesus, we thank you for your amazing love and grace. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. And we can never repay you. But right now today, with grateful hearts, we just receive your full pardon, your full forgiveness, your inner cleansing, And we humbly offer our whole life as a living sacrifice to you. Would you live through us today so that the world may see your son Jesus through our lives? It's in his name we pray. Everybody said together, amen. Thank you for joining us today. We'd love to invite you to spend Easter with Liquid Church this April. We need hope more than ever before. We long for a restoration of dreams. We crave a sense of peace and healing in our lives and in our world. The struggle and despair of 2020 is not the end of our story. In fact, Easter teaches us that light breaks through the darkness. Celebrate Easter with us online and experience the rattle of Jesus's resurrection power. You can expect a multimedia experience with dynamic preaching, real stories of healing and breakthrough, powerful music, and special elements that will leave you feeling inspired. Join our church online experience launching Good Friday, April 2nd at 12 p.m and available on demand all Easter weekend. Just go to liquidchurch.com Easter to learn more. And if you enjoyed the podcast today, go ahead and subscribe or share it with your friends. Thanks again for listening.